this show will be talking about various financial, business, technology, and investment topics. Nothing in this podcast should be taken as professional advice, as it is for educational purposes only. All topics are complex and require research. Please do your own due diligence. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Wealth Huddle. Thanks for huddling back up with us. And I want to start off with this episode by saying Merry Christmas to all of my people and friends out there who are celebrating Christmas. It's been one hell of a year. I think we can all say that we really need this holiday and just relax. But I think there's one thing in this world that hasn't had time to relax, and that has been the hype behind Bitcoin, the hype behind the cryptocurrency industry as a whole. And now today, we have hit an all-time high, ladies and gentlemen. The holiday hype is real. 2020 really did close on a high note for all of us. Um, I have Fazan with me again. Uh, who else to? Who else is better to talk to uh, about the, the recent trends than Fazan himself? But I think we should get right into this, Fazan, if you're okay with it. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Merry Christmas, everyone. Thanks for love, love being back here. Thanks, man. Absolutely, man. So why, why not just start off where everyone's head's at? Bitcoin has hit its all-time high. I think it's sitting above 23,000 uh, when it hit its um, at, at the time of this recording. So where do you see Bitcoin's hype coming from? Why do you think we finally hit this point? Yeah, that's a good question. It's a, it's, there's a lot of factors on that. You know, I think it's been a, you know, anyone who's been following the industry since obviously the last bear market 2018 and, you know, 20, 20, yeah, 2018 until now, basically straight through, um, you know, they understand there's a lot of things that were happening behind the scenes. Now, actually, it's kind of funny. I mean, I, I sort of miss aspects of the bear market, to be honest, when things were, you know, quiet, uh, no headlines, you know, that's when, you know, man, that's when the best building occurs. And so for two years, We've had institutional infrastructure being built out, custody. We've had um, startups coming into the mix, building technology, APIs, data, analytics, all this stuff, right? And so you, you've seen that infrastructure mature. We saw Fidelity get into the mix. We see companies like Anchorage, which is a custody service. We see Coinbase custody getting more mature. So that's kind of what we need to talk, you know, mention first is that that's, that was happening up all of this now until you know, the headlines you see now a lot ran up to that, right? A lot, a lot led to that. Um, More recently, obviously, you know, back in March, we had the liquidations across all markets, right? Including Bitcoin and gold, everything, right? We had major pullbacks, major, uh, uh, you know, downside for a lot of assets. And so we've seen things rebound and recover, right? And I think off of that rebound, we've seen a narrative change in, you know, in a sentiment change, obviously COVID accelerated a lot of this stuff. It was already kind of existing a lot of these narratives, but COVID solidified it. And, and, and so what we're dealing with this year um, is, you know, the narrative around government involvement in, in the economy, right? We've seen the narrative around the digitization, digital transformation of the economy as well. Um, we've obviously seen stocks do really well in parallel, right? So people are getting out of cash into assets that can grow. Um, we've seen negative debt and yields around the world and bonds and bond markets. So we've seen cash flows out of there. Um, there's just so much. I mean, that's just that, that that's touching the that's scraping the surface. But the micro strategy, Michael Saylor, yeah. he's come in now 
and he's just blown blown Bitcoin off the water in terms of making it truly a asset that you can utilize to hedge, you know, uh, your treasuries. And um, a lot of people are looking at it as a stable method of growth. But more importantly, what it means to these companies who are deciding, yes, Bitcoin is the best alternative for our, our you know, for our company's money. Um, but Michael Saylor is not alone, even though he's, I think, amassed over $1.6 billion worth of Bitcoin and USD. Uh, you still have Square, Jack Dorsey's company, Galaxy Digital Holdings, obviously, and all these new players are coming into the space and they've put a large amount of capital into it, institutional capital. Um, so I wanted to separate two sides, though. One, focus on these hedge fund players. A lot of the, you know, your Stanley Drunken Miller kinds, your Anthony Scarmucci, uh, Paul Tudor Jones. Um, these individuals are coming in and they're saying, look, we want to buy Bitcoin. So Fazan, why don't you help us break down the arguments, right, between hedge funds and traders coming into space versus actual, you know, Fortune 500 companies deciding to put their cash reserve into Bitcoin? Yeah, no, it's great. Yeah, I think there is a big, big difference, right? I think it's great to see the hedge funds come into the game and announce and open up funds and access um, to to Bitcoin and direct access for their for their LP base for their investors. It's amazing to hear Paul Tudor Jones, um, legendary investor, actually talk about Bitcoin as this optimistic, almost hedge against the current system in a way, but optimistically. And he said that in a beautiful way. He was saying, you know, if you go short the bond market, you're kind of betting against humanity in a way. It's kind of negative, right? It's kind of pessimistic. But if you're betting on Bitcoin, you know, you're just betting on, you, you want the system to change, right? And, and certainly it is a hedge against failure, but it's not cheering on the failure. It's trying to build a better alternative, right? When things emerge, right? When things reemerge. But that's, you know, one guy is talking definitely talking up the Bitcoin narrative. Now that you have a Paul Tudor Jones in the game, who was kind of one of the first to announce, um, you know, it's kind of a reputational risk is off the back of some of the other hedge funds from raising their hand and saying, oh, I'm going first. Right. And so that's why we've had this floodgate open up because they were all buying around nine, 10,000, probably a little lower. Some of them, they just weren't saying anything. And now that Paul Tudor Jones said something, a few months later, we see this massive floodgate open. So, and then when we see large, so we, when we see MicroStrategy come into the mix, um, you know, that and Square, it's a totally different conversation because these corporate treasuries, you know, they're in it for the long run. They're looking out five, 10 years potentially. Um, they're, and they say explicitly, this is kind of a hedge against inflation, potent risk, you're holding cash in this time of age, right? We're going to have a lot more stimulus come out. And I, I'm not against stimulus, by the way, it's just going to get overboard, right? And we're going to get addicted to it. And corporations are going to get addicted to the Federal Reserve stepping in on every single thing. We've already done unprecedented money printing. So these co corporations are getting that, hey, this is a great place to park our cash, right? Look at the, look at the historical data, look at, look at the, right? So, and then the other one, I'm not sure if you mentioned was Mass Mutual. I think you might've mentioned it. Um, 200, almost 200 year old insurance company. I mean, I would have loved to be a fly on the wall of that decision in their yeah. boardroom. Who is, I don't even know who's heading that up. That's all, that's legendary. I mean, coming in and um, I think they bought from Coinbase too. So they, you know, Coinbase is doing really well now. Um, on these on these institutional buys, but again, that's a much longer term thought process there. And so, the, you know, I think we're just early though. That's the thing. That's why I'm very bullish. Is that you have these institutions like Gray, uh, Grayscale as well taking a ton of supply off the table with these massive buys and causing this massive tailwind where no one wants to sell at these levels. You know, that's why we see price just 
kind of coming way past. Once we hit 20K, it's at 24 now, right? But just know it's simple supply and demand at this point. These institutions are taking massive amounts of supply off. It's a very deflationary asset. And so it's just, there's going to be a supply shock in the sense that people aren't going to sell until much higher. So that's where we're at. Yeah, I think it's important to differentiate who the big buyers are. Yeah, and Fazan did bring up a good point. Mass Mutual was one of the the ones I wanted to get into a little bit more more deeply because, again, like he said, it's a two hundred year old institution. But what does that exactly mean? And you know, it's not just the fact that they're an old company. It's, uh, it's what their purchase of Bitcoin means for the global audience, right? They're giving that exposure of Bitcoin to thousands of retail investors who are part of their uh, who are holding their insurance policy. So not only have they bought nearly two hundred million. Uh, worth dollars worth of Bitcoin, but now they've also uh, gone ahead and invested into a digital currency uh, company uh, that they invested through, right? So New York Invest, uh, New York Digital Investment Group, I believe, is a name. Yeah, uh, they bought five million dollars worth of a equity stake. So people who are wondering what does that mean, essentially, uh, what they have done is bought you know whatever the valuation of. Uh, NYDIG is currently, let's say it's for math sakes, $100 million, a $5 million investment into that company pre-money before the investment would mean that they've gotten 5% equity in that company. Very simple math. Obviously, there's a lot of other factors that go into it, but that shows that not only are they looking at Bitcoin as an asset, now they're looking at crypto industry and what that means in the long run because they're like, oh, we want to be a part of this growth. We don't want just Bitcoin. We want the we you know we want the full steak potatoes and vegetables here. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that speaks volumes that they're willing to make those, those types of investments. And they're they're seeing again. This is the whole, you know, digital transformation, which has become a very catchy term now for since especially this year. I hadn't heard it too much prior, but uh, it all falls into that. Um, but yeah, these are the buyers that the space wants, and this is really the digital gold narrative is playing out before our eyes a lot faster. I think, you know, you talk to hardcore Bitcoiners and even they're surprised. And and this is this idea of gradually then suddenly, right? It was kind of gradually happening for a few years. The bear market came along. Everyone screamed, oh, it's dead again. You know, and it wasn't because I I know the reason I knew it wasn't too is because everyone was still building, you know, no one was giving up. They're saying, are we And custody was coming and all these, you know, uh, infrastructure plays were coming exchanges. So yeah, it's just, um, you know that this digital gold narrative is a real thing now, and and I mean my 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 you know it's a real thing when your seventy uh, five year old dad texts you oh I just saw a grayscale commercial about digital gold you know Bitcoin. Well, kudos to your father. I know he's always been a uh, entrepreneur, so it's not that surprising that a man like him has. Uh come full circle around and said, yeah, you know what? Bitcoin yeah. Is- he still questions it. I, I still you know, have, have these conversations with him. How, what's going to happen when all of it's mined? You know, he has the, the long-term view on it. Um, but he's, he's all about locking it up generationally. He's all about that, right? Uh, lock it up for your kids. If it changes the world, then, you know, it's going to be a big deal. So I actually want to bring up a statistic that that just reminded me of, like in terms of when you were speaking early about like the U.S. dollar, just people wanting to move away from it, what it means for the stimulus packs, all this money that's being printed. So I was reading earlier that there has been nearly 23% of all the U.S. dollars that are currently in circulation were printed uh, this year. So the M1 money supply of the United States has increased nearly 65% since the start of 2020. And then if you compare it to you know, you compare it to Bitcoin, right? And all these companies that have put their, you know, their, let's say their, their corporate treasury into Bitcoin, they've realized the gain between 22% to 
for 50% on average and certain companies, obviously the ones who have put a lot more, let's say I would assume this figure probably represents MicroStrategy, nearly 89% um, growth from their initial investments, right? So it's, it's interesting to see that the, the way that the dollar has, I wouldn't say it's losing its value because that's you know a completely different argument, inflation, whatnot, all those things like that. But as people are continuing to, let's say, lose faith in their government, they're looking to gain faith in decentralized systems. So yeah. um, that's going to be very, very entertaining to see in the next few years. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I think the inflation conversation is uh, very nuanced. And I agree this trust aspect is a lot more clear what's happening institutionally. There's a, a loss of trust in, in institutions. And that's why, you know, that's another reason why the narrative is playing out. But, I, you know, I think there is going to be a level of inflation over. And I think a lot of the, and there is inflation in other countries. You know, people are using Bitcoin in other countries. Um, for really important things that don't, don't get a ton of coverage because we're we're kind of sheltered from that in the West and we have controls and and, and we're you know we, we're not there yet. But I think the Bitcoin bet, if you're in the U.S. or Europe, and, and you know you're, you're not necessarily going through some crazy inflation today, but you are just betting ahead on that as a risk factor. And I think every country goes through that. And so is historically, you know, who knows if it's 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, 10 years, honestly, who mm-hmm. knows? I mean, look, look at the data, right? It's, it's growing. And so, you know, and it's only going to get more the politicians coming in and politicians everywhere on both sides of the aisle um, are, are very happy with uh, large scale government involvement in the economy. And, and yeah. we can argue their competence. I think it's important to argue our leaders competence on, on all sides. Right. So, yeah, that's a big part of it. That's a huge well, part of it. You stole the words right out of my mouth because I wanted to get into regulation. I want to talk about some of the things that are yeah. really hot uh, on that side because I think you cannot talk about Bitcoin in the crypto industry without talking about regulation. So there are it's three- actually one of my favorite topics. This so is I, your I it's one of my because I work with startups who are who just went through regulatory issues in in U.S. and beyond. So, anyways, yeah, I I just it, it is. I, I try not to. Uh, go too deep in the rabbit hole but yeah let's let's stay on topic let's start with a very simple one right something that's not a regulatory concern maybe even just for the overall uh, regulation of the crypto industry if that is a thing uh coinbase you know they filed their s1 uh for for those people who are not familiar with what that means it is essentially coinbase saying we want to uh, be in the process for our initial public offering and rumor has it that uh, Coinbase has reached out to Goldman Sachs to lead that whole entire process for them. So, Fazan, what is your take on Coinbase essentially going public, and what does that mean for the crypto industry? Yeah, it's 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 huge. I mean, it's the biggest exchange. Um, most users, um, you know, most volume at least in the U.S. and West. So, it's it's a huge company, and it, they're they're and they're you know, like I said, they're behind a lot of these large institutional buys, right? They they're they they're the ones who structure this buying and. These guys can buy Bitcoin, you know, billion dollars of Bitcoin and barely move the price because Coinbase and other over-the-counter desks have processes in place. So, anyways, on the IPO, we're going to see more transparency into what their operation looks like, and and I think they're, they're, it's going to be very healthy for for the industry. There's a legitimacy factor now. We have a cryptocurrency exchange. You know, uh, you know, who knows what the value is going to be? Tens of billions potentially. Mm-hmm. I've seen more uh, projections. 
like with mass mutual and these other institutions it's credibility and so as much and we can get into regulation in a moment but it, it ties in really well because i mean when you're talking about regulation when you have large public companies in the industry which we never had before um, there's a credibility factor there that really helps and it's it, it, it's it, it, it brings about more data on these companies and what they're really doing and what they're holding and what their revenues are and where their revenues are coming from and all these filings are just going to be very useful for regulators and to anyone right the, the society is just knowing what the you know how these companies are operating yeah and i think with coinbase also just knowing who their user base is when you talk about crypto finally going mainstream you could argue already has but when you in the literal sense you know people who don't really know what bitcoin is or what crypto is all of a sudden there's going to be one trusted name that's on the public markets um that has all those disclosures that has all their you know their revenues and whatnot being made public so you could understand their business model and say look i i don't know what this company what crypto is but i do know that there is a company that's listed on a new york stock exchange that is willing to which gives it a, a large sense of legitimacy so now you know jill and john are going to be like all right you know might as well put a little bit of money into bitcoin so it's opening up the retail marketplace so i want to get into our uh, two minute drill now right uh hot topics some of the questions that a lot of people within the industry don't want to be talking about but we will because that's what we do here on wealth huddle as we want to educate everyone um, first thing that I want to talk about is this recent ruling that uh, Steve Mnuchin had led uh, in regards to this crypto wallet or uh, per you, you, what's going to happen with those crypto when you take custody of your assets, where does it go, being able to track it. There's a lot of buzz about it. What his intentions were originally was not translated into the ruling, but I think uh, you can provide the, yeah, the, yeah. the listeners a little bit more clarity on what was what was it that he wanted and what was actually translated in the final documentation? I know he wanted something harsher. The last few years have been pretty light on enforcement and the regula the regulatory environment was mostly about deregulation and opening things up. So you didn't see a ton of oversight. And, and look, one other thing that causes, unfortunately, is a little bit of lack of understanding of where the regulators stand. So that was one mistake, I think, that was made. But there wasn't some massive overreach going on, okay? So and so it's mostly been about terrorism, anti-money laundering, those types of things. Now, that stuff can get over the top, right? That stuff can, you know, you can justify national security for everything and suddenly you're hurting the average user. Now, I think this bill does not hurt the average user, but it is potentially a slippery slope into privacy. So basically, really what it is now is it's exchanges need to report on transactions. So exchanges will have to hire some compliance people, maybe they already have them, I don't know, um, to generate reports. If I uh, uh, withdraw a certain amount of crypto, I think it's three to $3,000, they will flag that essentially, and the exchange will have to report that transaction to, the, uh, to FINRA, which is a regulatory body. This is actually in line with any other currency exchange. So these are actually very old, kind of from the 70s, I believe anti-money money laundering laws around currency exchange. So it's not like they've built this around crypto uniquely. They're just applying a money MSB, it's called money service business rules, which are all exchanges in, in crypto or money service businesses, they have licenses. They're just applying that to them. It wasn't applied before. And, and so there's tons of problems with it, um, but it's not really impacting the user in, in any kind of active way. They're not saying, hey, you can't send it here. I can't send it to Ion. I can't. 
there's no pro prohibition of transactions, which, you know, some European bodies have actually put in that in place. So that's scary. You know, that, that would be terrible. Right. Yeah. I think a lot of the concern currently, right. And when I first read it, the, the rule kind of introduced, or it felt like it was introducing a level of financial surveillance that you really hadn't seen before. Right. So if I would compare it to the way that banking works today, uh, you talked about withdrawing a certain amount of money today. If I went to a bank and I withdrew, let's say, over $10,000, or if I tried to, um, a CTR is filled. Uh, for those that don't know, that yeah. is a, um, I believe it's a currency transaction report, but law enforcement can't actually like wind up tracking the cash itself. Like if they, if I pull out 10K or try to, they'll be notified, but the, the money itself can't be traced. Like if I go and use that Burger King or if I go use it to, at, for any illegal purposes, it's not like you can actually know where the funds are being used. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So I guess a concern for a lot of people in the crypto industry is that in the crypto world, you have this sort of, in, in blockchain, you have an address, which essentially provides anyone who's viewing it on a public ledger to see where that transaction is coming and going to, right? But now it feels like that, that they want a data feed that also includes the identity of the individual on top of it, right? And this is kind of like without any consent. So people who are you know, doing transactions on top of the public chains, they're thinking, well, this level of financial surveillance and scrutiny does not exist in our existing financial system. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, and that's a really good point. That's where I, that's where I was referencing the privacy concerns. I think you're right. You know, and I think we're kind of going to see probably the death of cash to some degree. I mean, it's a whole other topic. We don't have to go down the rabbit hole, but obviously with cash comes privacy, right? Mm -hmm. um, I go to the store, you don't know where I spend it. And that's actually a beautiful thing, right? You have individual privacy with cash. Now they want to, and countries have already sort of eliminated it and got, you know, like Sweden, they're kind of getting rid of that. And obviously then you have governments that want to implement central bank digital currencies. Again, all big topics we don't have to dig into, but all of this does tie in. And, and I think, you know, I, I totally agree that tying that to a wallet address, you know, um, as if that, and I agree it is a little novel in a sense because this is a ledger technology. So you have the history, you have the data actually posted on the blockchain. So I think they've figured out you can kind of almost use blockchain, the ledger against the user a little bit, actually. So, I mean, the government can kind of use that ledger by tying IDs. Now, you know, look, exchanges are already collecting a massive amount of data on users. And you have companies like Chainalysis working with the government who are already doing some pretty deep surveillance on chain. But now you're right, it's going to be operationalized, it's going to be in these spreadsheets or whatever they're going to use, hopefully they're secure, you know, who knows, um, to get hacked again. <laughs> I agree. I, so I think if, if they didn't do anything from here, I wouldn't be too worried. Yeah. The problem is, it's, it's, it, they're setting the precedent and it's very rushed out. You know, I, I understand all the complaints going on against the Treasury. Comple I'm 100% in criticism of their rolling out. They have 15 days, I think, to respond. Yeah. Tons to criticize. Uh, I would just say if they didn't imagine hypothetically they didn't do anything from here, I wouldn't be too worried about it. It's mostly an exchange thing. We're, they're already collecting in order to buy crypto and anything on Coinbase or anything in the U.S. They know everything about you, and which is fine. Whatever. That's what we're where we're at. Okay. Um, so yeah, I, I know this takes it a step further. The problem is it's setting a precedent, and it's it, it is a slippery slope situation where it's going to get more and more surveillance. It's going to get more like a bank. The situation that you see with uh, with with the cryptocurrency or crypto industry versus the government, right? The whole entire idea is that I have no problem with the government putting in regulation as long as it actually helps individuals get into the industry, learn about it, 
be safe within it. They don't do that, right? You get very granular with it. They want to get hands on with it. And it creates a huge problem. And the first thing that I thought about, if you look at when the crypto industry tried to meet up with the government, it only occurred once before COVID. They had like an hour or two meeting that was recorded. Uh, you can actually go back and watch it. And then there was another, I would say, couple hour uh, discussion. And then, you know, the government, Stephen Nutrient and all these individuals are coming out and saying, oh, we've tried to work with the industry, but they weren't willing to comply. That's not the case, right? You need to spend more time working with the people, understanding it, getting your hands dirty with it, and then going from there. I guess the next, the next topic I want to get into is XRP. Um, those who don't know what XRP is, that is the Ripple uh, coin, the token. Uh, it's been a hot topic this week, especially leading into, the, into Christmas 2020. Um, Ripple has been sued by the SEC. Now, there are a few few takes on this. A lot of people are, you know, the XRP holders and believers and lovers will tell you it's, you know, they, the government is not right, they're wrong. Here are the facts of what happened with XRP, right? They are a centralized company that sold centralized shares as tokens to fund their centralized company, right? So essentially what they were doing was taking these tokens that were worked that weren't representing um, uh, equity and they were selling it to investors. Then they manipulated the price to gain momentum profits on their side. They stated their intention publicly and to their employees. Then they wind up selling the token that has no utility and then label it as a currency to try and you know wiggle around the earlier 2018 uh, regulation scandals. Then they raised way more money than they actually needed to to build their network and then you find out that the the founders are dumping their personal tokens onto investors after the company has apparently blown through the the money that they raised right so that they're trying to prop up the price once again to help people uh make returns so laying that out because on what is your take on xrp and the current situation you know i think it's a really strong case against them and i think all exchange as we speak literally, um, and this week into this weekend to Christmas, probably, well, maybe not on Christmas, but into the next few weeks, I'll say they're going to be delisting exchanges. I guess exchanges might delist 24 seven, you know, they could delist anytime, right? Crypto never sleeps. Right. So I guess they could, they could delist. That would be a good Christmas gift for, uh, for, for ripple. Um, don't worry. <laughs> I don't want to be uh, bashful. No, but, um, look, so it's looking really bad for them, right? So I think it's a lesson. You know, the problem I have with them is they are trying to pull down other projects on their way down yeah. and, and, and kind of bring, act kind of like we're all in this together, but then simultaneously throwing other things, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum under the bus, which clearly are more decentralized. They don't have a CEO. This yeah. is an important topic in the industry. I mean, the fact that we don't know who founded Bitcoin it makes that's the strength that's the immaculate conception that we you know that 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 is not very likely to ever happen again okay like now theory uh, very suitable for the holiday season right now right with christmas yes that's true i didn't think about that yeah that's true <laughs> yeah um <laughs> yeah that, no, i mean that's what bitcoin is i mean so so that, the reason we can't sue bitcoin is there's no ceo the reason we can't sue ethereum there's no i mean there's a foundation i guess it would technically be feasible in a way mm -hmm. but at this point with ethereum you have the CFTC, you have all these people coming out and saying it looks like a commodity commodity now. It's not a security anymore. 
And, and so anyways, that's a whole other topic. But yeah, with Ripple, it's just another example of a uh, you know, centralized company operating that way. You know, they'll, they'll fight it. You know, obviously they have good lawyers. They have a lot of capital. They're, they're a very late stage private company. There's a chance they can, you know, diminish the, the pain. But I think, yeah, they'll be off a lot of exchanges by, by the end of the year. And the price is already down a lot on the actual mm-hmm. asset. Ripple, the valuation of Ripple is probably going to go quite a bit down because, you know, all, a lot of their sales were from that. A lot of their revenue is from that. And one last point on it, too, is that they were claiming all this usage and all these users, but the only one using it were people they were paying. Yeah, they weren't real, you know, like MoneyGram, right? MoneyGram might pull out um, as well. They were they were an investor. Um, yeah. So that's my point on it. I think it was predictable from where I'm sitting. I never recommended buying it. Um, I guess it was a good trade back in the day, but yeah, I, I was never a fan of of this. It was pretty pretty obvious. Well, that was the thing with uh, XRP that I think a lot of people didn't approve. It's not. It's there's an argument that now you know you could say that that what the CEO is trying to do is essentially rally up U.S. investors to kind of be like, oh, look at the SEC, they're killing innovation in the United States, right? That whole entire argument, but it's really not a valid point because XRP from the start is not decentralized, right? They do have a CEO, like you said. Um, They try to compare, oh, well, XRP is similar to Ethereum in the sense that it was created by someone. Ethereum might have a founder, but it's not like Ethereum's networking power, which again, we can cover in another topic, is based off the amazing developers and the people who are creating new and new projects on top of it, right? And I'm actually very much convinced that if let's say the founder were to say pass away, Ethereum would still rally. Ethereum has a large network of users, Bitcoin as well. I think even the first person to ever hold Bitcoin or the person who has the most amount of Bitcoin, if they were to say, you know, if Michael Saylor were to, the company, something happened to MicroStrategy, nothing would happen to the Bitcoin marketplace. I think it's large enough where there's enough amount of users there that it's going to hold itself up. This is another, the timing of this is very pertinent too. So let's just give the benefit of the doubt on, you know, or let's be a little critique the regulators as well a little bit, right? Mm. The timing of this literally today, okay? Uh, So on Wednesday, um, the uh, SEC chair, Jay Clayton, is gone. He's he's out. I just saw the headline. So um, he wanted a win. This is actually a pretty easy win. There are other crypto projects that have CEOs, but they're, they're making a very strong effort not to do it the way Ripple did, basically. They're yeah. selling it to accredited investors only. Um, they, st- they push themselves away. They, they, they do other things on the tech side to decentralize. Ripple is not really doing any of that. And, and they, were, they were selling directly to the users and, and through exchanges. So it's, um, yeah, it's a slam dunk, for, I think. And, and, you know, these regulators, honestly, I mean, uh, you know, some of them are, are really sharp and they do good, but a lot of them want status. They want the win. They want the legacy. And so I think this was a big win that Jay Clayton and his team can now have put on the table that is very likely to lead to something. So, you know, you have to see it from both angles. Yeah, I think actually to me, I, I referred to this earlier. I, I do think that these regulators, uh, although it's good that they got involved here to protect the consumer, there is concern to me in the fact that you're telling me that you knew all along that Ripple was doing this, yeah, right? That's true. Rip, that Ripple, true. It's not like Ripple was started yesterday or something, right? Ripple, you, you came out in 2018. You could have stopped Ripple then when you were coming down with the crypto, um, you know, the hammer on all these ICO companies, all these companies like that. Yet it took you nearly two years to finally tell Ripple, oh, yeah, you know what, guys? 
Um, remember how I was telling you it was okay. I was working with your, you know, you guys as a payment systems and everything like that. Uh, nah, it's cool. We're going to go ahead and actually say what you're doing is illegal. Um, but let's move away from some of the uh, more downs of this industry because I don't think it's representative of what's going on across the board. Instead, I want to talk about the future, right? 2020 is ending. I think it's fair for us to give our prediction for 2021. So why don't you talk a little bit about Bitcoin and Ethereum and, you know, just the old, you know, even the alternative investments within the space and altcoins. Uh, where do you see that those going? Yeah, I think Bitcoin will lead the pack. Um, when you have new upside in the market enter, it's going to be through Bitcoin only initially. Um, as it always is, you know, the cycle plays out that way usually is that liquidity, the engine starts with Bitcoin and then kind of siphons out to different coins over time where risk risk factors change. I think, you know, look, I, I think I, I can't remember if I said it on, on the last show, but, I, you know, I thought when we broke 20,000 and I wrote about this as well back in uh, August and I did a Bitcoin specific blog post and I wrote about how once we pass the 20,000 range, mm-hmm. that is when the institutions will look at, and it sounds funny to people because, you know, obviously institutions, you'd think, oh, they're going to buy down in 3000, but actually it gets, and Bill Miller is a uh, famous investor. He talked about this. He's one of the old school investors who, who bought Bitcoin a long time ago, but he said, you know, as the price goes up, the risk actually kind of goes down because the price is actually representative of adoption, the sentiment around the network, the strength of the mining network, everything, right? So a lot of the institutions will jump in after 20, not to mention even just the price psychology of that. Everyone thought that ceiling was at 20 and we would crash. I, I knew so many people. I actually honestly didn't think we would break 20 this year. So I was actually wrong about it. I thought it would be early next year. I thought we would consolidate. But I know a lot of people who thought, oh, it's just going to sell back to, you know, at 20 is going to get rejected. Double top. You had Peter Schiff coming out. Double top, which is <laughs> double tops are not a thing, guys. It, 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 it's not exactly a thing. It's, it's not. And double bottoms aren't a thing either. It's not nonsense, okay? Um, <laughs> you know, you can make a chart look like anything you want. So anyways, so, I, you know, I think we're, we're in price discovery mode where I think you're going to have uh, the, the usual choppiness in any of these markets. You're going to have upside and then sell-offs, upside sell-offs. You know, I don't want to dig into altcoins too much. I think that, you know, references, uh, maybe reference in a different uh, session, but... Um, you know, altcoins have more risk. You know, Bitcoin's by far the best risk-adjusted investment in the space, followed by Ethereum. Everything else is much more leverage kind of feel where, you know, uh, volatile is going to, it's going to maybe grow faster, but it's going to crash faster too or correct faster. And so you're going to see these cycles play out where we go up, you know, maybe to 30K and then we pull back to, for Bitcoin, we pull back to 22, something like that, right? Just as an mm-hmm. example. So um, yeah, let's see who's who has the strong hands, and I I, I just think um, you're, you're we're still early in the sense that I think we're about a year out from really seeing things go into a mania potentially. I don't want to call time frame; I don't like that, but mm-hmm. approximately twelve to eighteen months, uh, maybe. And um, I, I just think we're early in the sense that you're going to see more announcements, institutions, adoption. You're going to see these guys double down. You're going to see squares of the world. Buy more. We 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 didn't mention PayPal, which isn't exactly institutional buying, but that's the retail side. So you're going to see more things like PayPal infrastructure. Who's accepting it now? Yeah. It's just accepted part of society. 
and we've hit escape. I think 20K is escape velocity. That's what I like to say. I have a whole blog post coming out about this actually as well soon uh, about escape velocity once we're here. And that's why we're hearing from the regulators. It all ties in because the regulators are coming now because of escape velocity. It's exactly tied together. So I think it's a really interesting time and we have large buyers at very healthy high levels mm-hmm. taking supply off the table. It's very simple supply and demand here. Now, just to play devil's advocate, we could see a, a large pullback in the market where everything correlates again like it did in March 2020 because of COVID. I just think there's probably more upside in the stock market as well. I think we're almost going to have this roaring roaring 20s type yeah. of feel, which ironically in, 1920, in the 1920s, it, it followed the Spanish influenza. Now we're falling. Now I don't want to be that guy who just points to history and says it repeats, but um, it, there's something to be said about that because you're going to have a large stimulus. You're going to have tons of liquidity injected into the markets. Like I said, all these companies are going to be addicted to that. And that's very good for the Bitcoin narrative, yeah. whether you like it or not. It just is. And Bitcoin isn't causing that. We're not, pr- we're not hoping for that. I don't want to see the dollar collapse. And I don't think it's going to collapse, by no. the way. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's going to, but most Bitcoiners don't necessarily, uh, some do. Okay. I will say some do. Um, but most people want to see society still do very well. We're not betting on the end of the world. Yeah. We're just saying things are going to change. And this captures that change in a, in a very unique way. It captures that and it captures the value of that change in a very unique way. So I'm, I'm, I'm bullish if you can't hear it. Uh, obviously yeah. I am. Um, but again, it's going to be a choppy up, you know, the upside is going to be choppy. So there's going to be a bunch of people freaking out when it when it pulls back, but yeah, I'm I'm in it for the long run, regardless. So, absolutely, and I think uh, you know, Fazan, thank you so much for your thoughts. Yeah, thank you. Episode, uh, but you know, I guess I'll leave out leave off our listeners to one point: uh, Is Bitcoin going to hit six figures? Right? Is Guggenheim CIO 400k price analysis correct? No one knows. Nobody knows. But I think based off the current trend that we've seen with Bitcoin and the the emergence of a lot of institutional investors. If you guys who are familiar with um, the technology adoption, there's something called the S curve, right? Where you have at a certain point institutional adopters come in. I think, you know, I agree with Fazan, this is a lot earlier than I expected, but we've hit that point where you're seeing the institutional adoption come in, but there's still this legitimate level of growth that's still available. And that is kind of what we're going to see over the next few years. Um, So there is still a chance if you're wondering if it's too late, it's not. Um, I absolutely believe that people should continue to dollar cost average in. Um, if you're in a position to put a certain percentage of your net worth in, I would say it's fair to do so as well. Again, this is not investment advice. It's just personally, if you want to learn about it, there's no better way to learn than having your getting your hands dirty. Um, on that note as well, uh, you know, if you guys are worried about the regulation and everything like that, go actually check out Fazan's. Uh, blogs. Check out what Fazan is talking about on his uh, on his Twitter as well. He gives a very good analysis of a lot of these sorts of updates. Um, so you can check that out at I believe visory.capital.io. Uh, is that correct, Fazan? Yeah, .io is kind of the blog page, and then .capital is the uh, is the site for the, with the portfolio and everything. But yeah. Okay, perfect. Yeah, I'll, I'll include the links down in our description. Once again, Merry Christmas to everybody who is going to be enjoying that holiday this year. Um, like I said, I think we all need it. Um, looking forward to catching everybody who listens to Wealth Huddle uh, sometime next year. It's going to be crazy 2021. Mm-hmm. Uh, I pray to God that you know this time around we don't get hit with something crazy, but who knows? At this point, uh, um, mystery is the only guarantee. So 
Thank you for listening. I'll catch you guys soon. 